Sunday service here in the Village. For those viewing online. Also, we want to especially welcome our newfound friends with the Spiritual Life Center who have been here this weekend uh, enjoying a nature awareness retreat. So, welcome to you all. My name is uh, Nayaswami Krishnadas, and this is now quite Nayaswami Mantra B. So I'll be reading from Rays of the One Light. These are weekly commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita, written by Swami Kriyananda. Today's message, how should we meet our tests? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Last week, we considered Satan's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness after his baptism by John. We discussed the question, does Satan exist? All of us experience temptation of one kind or another in our lives, some of us frequently, others only occasionally. Whether temptation comes to us from our own subconscious or from outside ourselves, is secondary to the fact that it does come and that we must deal with it. More important, then, is the question how to deal with it. In fact, how to deal with tests of any kind. Martin Luther flung an inkpot at the devil who had appeared to test him. A dark stain on the wall of Luther's cell is pointed out to tourists in support of this story. Unfortunately, our trials are not often so summarily dismissed. As a fellow monk once said to Swami Kriyananda, speaking of Satan, I only, if only I could get my hands on him. Jesus, during his temptations in the wilderness, overcame them and thereby set an example for all time by clinging the more determinedly to God. As Paramahansa Yogananda used to say, Darkness cannot be driven out of a room with a stick. Once you turn on the light, however, the darkness will vanish as though it had never been. Jesus manifested this principle. The Bible tells us, therefore, that at last the devil leaveth him, and behold, angels came and ministered unto him. In the Bhagavad Gita, the point is clarified further by the added explanation that there are three qualities in human nature, sattvic or spiritually elevating, rajasic or ego activating, and tamasic or spiritually darkening. It is this triune aspect of human nature that the third chapter in the Gita refers to with the words, as fire is hidden by smoke, as a mirror is dulled by rust, and as an embryo is enclosed in the womb, so is the indwelling self enveloped by desire. Yogananda explained that each of these examples describes one of the, of the qualities or gunas. Sattva guna, that which elevates our consciousness, can be freed of any identity with ego by a little puff of meditation and right affirmation. 
rajaguna, which embroils the ego in restless activity, can be worked off with a little more and a little longer effort. Tamaguna, embracing as it does such mental states as laziness and stupidity, can only be outgrown in time, since it inhibits inhibits even the desire for self-improvement. The example Jesus gave us was intended more for those in whom sattva guna is predominant. But if you yourself find elements in your consciousness that resist even the effort to cling to God in prayer and meditation, don't despair. Patience, as it has been well said, is the fastest path to God. As long as your efforts take you steadfastly in the right direction, you will come out right in time. Remember Yogananda's words, a saint is a sinner who never gave up. If, however, your nature impels you, even against your will, to move in the wrong direction, toward egoic desires and away from God, strive at least least to detach yourself mentally from your wrong actions, which are induced by habit. The time will come when their own stored-up energy will tire and diminish. At that time, if you have not contributed to the energy by your consenting will, you will find it possible at last to redirect your energies more constructively. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. everyone. It's a joy to be here with you this morning. And I'd like to begin by reading from Whispers from Eternity, Poems and Prayers by Paramahansa Yogananda. This poem is called Flight. I closed my eyes and saw the skies of thin opalescent infinity spread around me. The gray chariot of the dawn of awakening decked with lights, giving subtle vision, came and took me away. I zoomed through space, bored through the mysterious ether, passed through age-hidden spiral nebulae, and soared willy-nilly on and on, left, right, north, south, above, below. I found no landing, but going into distracting tailspins, I spun through limitlessness. I whistled through ethereal banks of light until, bit by bit, my chariot melted into the all-transmuting flame. My body melted in that purifying fire. My thoughts melted in that consuming blaze. And my feelings all became pure liquid light. Isn't that a beautiful poem? You know, Master, for those of you, there's many people here for the first time. When I refer to Master, I mean Paramahansa Yogananda. And Swamiji is Swami Kriyananda, 
our founder of Ananda, our teacher and spiritual guide. So Master saw the bigger picture all the time, didn't he? And one thing that we know about this world that doesn't change is we know spiritual tests will come. That's the topic today. And that things will change. So we always have that at our hand. And I was thinking, what, what are spiritual tests? What are they for? Why do we have spiritual tests? And I was realizing they are to catch our attention so that we can redirect our energy. That's simply what they're there for. Because tests, spiritual tests are of the ego. The soul is always steeped in joy. The soul knows what it is. But the ego, if we have been incarnating for millennium, millions of lifetimes, this is a long learning curve. And we've, we're, you know, getting towards the end. But then a test comes up. And because it's of the ego, it's either we can accept what's happening or we can change our energy. And we always have a choice, don't we? There's always a choice. I remember our son when he was young, one time, um, his name is Chaitanya, and he goes by Chai now. And he um, wanted to stay up late watching a movie. And I said, no, you need to go to bed because you have to get up early because tomorrow's Easter. That's one of the downside of having minister parents. (laughs) (laughs) You have to do a service often on holidays. And he said, no, I want to stay up. I said, okay, but when you get up in the morning, you cannot complain. You have to get up without complaining. No complaining. And so he looked at me. He considered his choices. He picked up the remote, turned off the TV, and said, I'd rather complain. (laughs) (laughs) He's always been fairly (laughs) clear-minded. So when Swami talked about in the passage, he referred to the gunas. And the gunas are part of the physical universe. When you come into being, when you get this body, that is the standard set of of apparatus that comes with this body, in this custom-made body, but that's the standard stuff, right? Is that you come with the different levels of consciousness, and that's how the universe is made. So we can't get out of it. And there's the different levels that um, Swami talked about, the tamoguna, which tamoguna is that inertia, is that part of ourselves that has no desire even to rise spiritually. And it just wants to do nothing. It wants to stay in its little rut. And um, it's like a couch potato. When you're a couch potato, that's tamaguna. I read something funny I have to share. This woman um, said she was complaining to her coworkers that she had a sore back and her muscles were sore from moving furniture. And one of her coworkers said, well, why didn't you wait till your husband got home? And she said, well, actually, it's easier to move the couch when he's not on it. <laughs> and, and, that's, and that is... <laughs> is what, you know, the couch potato, it's inert, it's, it's immovable. And then Rajaguna, it's the next level up. It's where there's energy. There's energy and restlessness. Restlessness, the ego keeps getting pulled into the world. 
They keep you try to sit down and be quiet and meditate, and you start thinking. And next thing you know, you're up and you're doing something. So that's that. That, but it has more energy. And Yogananda said he could do work with anyone who had energy. Didn't matter if the energy is going in the wrong direction. As long as you have energy, then that can be redirected. And that's with us. Whenever we at least have energy behind something, we can redirect it. And then Sattva Guna, he says, is the state of elevated consciousness that is tuning into that soul joy. It's tuning into what we really are. And that a little puff of meditation can free you from the binds of ego that are attached to that. And so it's different for different people and different levels. I mean, for a saint, his tamaguna is different than for a couch potato, let's say. That um, when Swami Kriyananda was first on the path, he started training himself. And he would get up at four in the morning. He'd meditate for two or three hours and have breakfast at seven, then work and do his job and service and meditate at noon then work again till about five, and then he would meditate in the evening another couple of hours, and, and then um, go to bed, try to be in bed before 10, so that he could get up again at four. And this went on for a long time, and, and at one point he just got really tired, and just, oh, I just can't do this anymore, you know? So he just said he had to let down his energy and really do something to moss it. So what did he do? He laid on his bed and read Shakespeare. <laughs> so you can compare your level of Tomasic <laughs> with his level of Tomasic. And that, but, you know, it's an, it's an upward spiral. We keep going and we keep rising. And that's the good thing. And I was thinking the anatomy of a spiritual test. What, what is a spiritual test? And energy is really what we work with. And energy is what the universe is made of. Energy and patterns of energy. And so a spiritual test is basically a spike of energy from a pattern that has previously been set into motion. So all of our actions are creating all these different motions, setting things into motion. And so you're going along, and here you are, and then this energy comes up, and you hit this energy, and life gets very hard. And that energy then subsides. And then again, and you hit the energy. And it goes like this. Now that energy, as everything goes into cycles, eventually, if left alone, it will just become little. And so our energy then will keep going, And you go, oh, I'm glad I'm through that test. I'm done with it. Unless you confirm and keep putting energy into that pattern, then guess what happens? It stays high. And you keep hitting it, and you keep hitting it. So you have a choice here. You have a choice. This choice, if you keep confirming, I don't like this. What what are those energy patterns? Attachment, desire, I don't like this, I like that, I wish it was this way, I want it to be this way, that way. And so you reaffirm that pattern and it keeps going. And you go like, why can't I get out of this test? Why can't I not be in it anymore? 
And there again, the test is there to catch your attention so that you can redirect your energy, so you can do something else, so that that won't keep asserting itself. So here's another choice you could make. That pattern's coming along, you raise your energy. And guess what? You're over the pattern. And it no longer is bothering you because your consciousness is uplifted into a more sattvic way of being. Uh, years ago, I was in a, a, a going through a test that I'd been in it for several years, and um, it, no resolution in sight. And because the the solutions and the resolutions were would have put into the consequences of them, whatever decisions that I made would, weren't acceptable to me, and so. Um, I couldn't move either way. And so I was in a situation I couldn't accept, but I couldn't let go of that which was making me unhappy. And it just kept, of course, reasserting itself. And um, this was in 1989, and we had a big celebration here of our 20th anniversary of Ananda Village. And we had what we called a pilgrimage to joy and invited masters a nephew and his wife, Hare Krishna, Ghosh and his wife, Anjali, and Shabindu Lahiri, who is the great-grandson of Lahiri Mahashaya. We had a big tent out here in the field, and, and everyone spoke, and Swami gave talks, and, and it was just a real high time, really wonderful. And so I had planned to seclude the week after, and um, because what a great spring board to go from this high spiritual time into seclusion. And the day before I went into seclusion, Jyotish said to me, he was well aware of the test I was going through, and he said, you should meditate 12 hours a day. And at my incredulous look, he said, you can do it, (laughs) very encouragingly. So basically, I camped out in the meditation retreat temple. And for the next week, I just meditated and meditated a little bit more every day. By the end of the week, I was up to 12 hours a day. And it changed me. It changed my consciousness. I was totally different. And I came out of seclusion. Nothing bothered me. That test didn't bother me. I mean, I could have been living in the slums of Calcutta, and it wouldn't have bothered me. I mean, I was like, had tuned into that inner happiness and it lasted for months. But then gradually, you know, being very busy, being a mother, being, you know, working in the uh, village office, creating the village, or, you know, we were the family ministers, it was busy. So I didn't lack service. I didn't lack the opportunities to serve. But I lacked the time to uh, meditate those long hours. And so I couldn't keep up that level of consciousness. And gradually, I came down again to that level where that, that um, test was again. And so we have that choice. You know, we bring ourselves up to a level that that is not there anymore. Or we can keep plowing through it and try not to repeat the same thoughts, the same patterns. In the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says to Arjuna, he says, Arjuna, to stop the cycle of rebirth there are some things you need to do. And he outlined four things. And he said, you need to learn about concentration and focus. And that 
um, what he's meaning is meditation. And meditation with focus, meditation with energy. And he said, another thing is to unite the heart with the mind. And thinking about this, this is the most beautiful thing. Because uniting the heart with the mind is, for one thing, in meditation, it's very important that you use your focus and that you focus and concentrate, but you have to add your heart, right? I mean, if you're listening to inner sounds, they're just inner sounds until you add your heart. And then the joy comes. That's where the joy is, is inside our hearts. And when you feel that, then you're touching that soul quality. You can't do it without that. We have to unite both the mind and the heart. And also, that means thinking with the heart. You know, so often we think with our minds. It's like, think that, think that, try to figure that out, or say that. Speak with your heart. Speak with your heart. And make it be a habit. Make it be something that comes through. It's not just your mind speaking, but speak from soul to soul, from uh, spiritual eye to spiritual eye, from heart to heart. That's how we access that joy. And that joy is so important. It's, it's the underlying aspect of the universe. Yogananda said, try to access love, but then go beyond that to joy, which is the, the substance of the universe. And then Krishna said, and fourth, third, you need to deeply surrender to the Lord. So deeply surrender. So that means sharing everything with God. That means letting God flow through you. That means letting everything that happens to you be from God, be from the Lord. And then fourth, he said, uttering the mantra Om when dying. And so meaning that having your thoughts in the highest place when you leave this world. Because when you leave the world, the thought that you have is going to be the thought that continues into the next realm that you go to. And it's the thought, the consciousness, not the thought. It's thoughts too, but consciousness. And that when you come back into the next body, you'll come back with that consciousness. So it's very hot. It's very important to elevate your thoughts. And then Krishna said to Arjuna, he says, Arjuna, you need to practice beforehand. You need to practice this. And that's the part that's sometimes missing, is we're not practicing every moment. We're not always keeping that in mind. I mean, study yoga. It gives you all, all not yoga postures, yoga philosophy. It gives you all the things that you need to know to unite your soul with God. And the Buddha one time likened our thoughts to a herd of cows in a barn. And he said, he said, when the door opens, the strongest cow will go out first. And he said, now if there isn't a particularly strong cow, then the cow that is the habitual leader will go out of the door first. And if there isn't really any leader, then the cow nearest the door will go out first. <laughs> and lacking even that, they'll all try to get through at once. 
And isn't that true? Isn't that true with our thoughts? The strongest thought gets out first. As soon as something reminds you of something, that strongest thought that your subconscious has um, been trained to think gets out. And or the habitual leader. What thought leads for you? What is your strongest thought? What is your leading thought? And well, I was going to go on and say, and if there are no leaders in your thought, <laughs> you know, the one nearest the door, well, it could be what's for lunch. I don't know. But, but so when, take Gandhi, for instance, when that assassin's bullet hit his chest, what, what was his first thought? His first thought was of his beloved Lord. His first thought, his strongest thought, and his habitual thought, Sri Ram, Sri Ram. And that's how he left. And he got that way through constant practice. Constant practice. And that's what we need to be always focusing on that. In May, when we did um, the Moksha Mandir dedication for Swamiji's Mandir, um, we invited, again, a big celebration, and this time we invited Yogananda's great-nephew and his wife, and so the next generation, and uh, Somnath and Sarita Ghosh. And they stayed with us for two weeks. And so we really got to know them. And I must say, I was so touched by them. Um, Sarita's very gregarious and very people-oriented, and she... She likes people, and, and she's out there. Somnath is very reserved and not interested in people particularly, but interested in how things work, how things are made, how things are built. And he'd go around looking at everything in our house, and, and you know, he noticed details, and he would notice details about everything. But uh, he, he had this inner peace, and I think if I was going to describe him in just a couple of words, I would say he was a person of very little ego, in that he was always patient, he was always just accepting of what was going on, but he was very alert all the time. And he would, you know, like Sarita would tell stories, and I'm sure he'd heard lots of things that she'd said many times. He was always totally patient and right there, and if he would want to interject something, he'd talk. She'd be immediately quiet. And he would, you know, say something. He was, he was childlike, too. But what I noticed about him was having grown up in Yogananda's home and having a father who knew Yogananda, having being the lineage of Yogananda, it was like it was in his blood, in his essence, that deep spirituality you know, Sarita told me that all of Master's relatives are Kriyabans. And that, so when they have family reunions, I mean, it's this reunion of all these Kriyabans. I mean, high, you know, high thoughts of, in general, of a group. And um, for those of you who are here for the first time, Kriyabhan means someone who has taken the Kriya technique, which is a, um, a technique that Yogananda brought to this world or he resurrected in this world. He helped to bring it to the West. And so, um, so there, there was that 
deep spirituality, his, his devotion was so deep and inner that it was nothing outer. But you could just feel it was there. He would notice he, he was an Indian man and head of his household. Here he is, the descendant of Yogananda. And he didn't expect the world to conform to him. Because in India, he's served all the time. He has servants. He has a wife who serves him. And, and, and he came here and he noticed, oh, the men here aren't served the same way. <laughs> There's more. And, and so um, at one point, I saw him carrying his dish to the, his plate to the sink. I mean, it's like, you don't have to do that. But, but he, you know, he wasn't like he came and he wanted the world to be the way that he was used to it. He was not attached in an egoic way to what he was not proud of being what he was, but he was happy when he could do a good job. And Sarita, who is very opposite in many ways, and she's very heart and, and loving. And, and um, one thing about Somnat that I was realizing that one of the reasons he wasn't that interested in people is he just didn't relate to the whole drama you know, that goes on with people. Now, Sarita was very much involved with people and her family and everything. And she constantly referred everything to Master and Divine Mother, constantly. And it was, it was like, oh, Master did this for me. Oh, Divine Mother brought this to me. Oh, Master loves me so much that he made this happen. I mean, it was... All the time, it was always on her mind. And here she lived in Master's home, so it was a constant reminder, and she was totally dedicated to opening his home to devotees all over the world. And always, always referring back to God, to Divine Mother. And we, they wanted to buy gifts for people back in India, and here they were on a rupee budget in America, so they didn't have a lot to spend, and we took them to some stores and, and that. And then at one point I thought, well, maybe I'll take them to the uh, school thrift store because maybe they can find some T-shirts and things, you know, for the nephews and that kind of thing. And she asked me what that meant, thrift store, and I told her. And um, so we went down there, and that was a big hit because, <laughs> because there were things she could afford. You know, and she would, oh, master, oh, thank you. It's the, you know, there's that. It's so perfect. And she called, she called it the leftover shop. <laughs> and so wherever we went to other places, we went to the leftover shops. <laughs> Even Somnot got into it, you know. So, um, so always though referring that, and I'll just end with a story that she told about. Um, Divine Mother, and her love for Divine Mother. She had such a love for Divine Mother. Ever since she was a little girl, she just loved Divine Mother. And when she was uh, 10 years old, she got a picture of Divine Mother. She called her Divine Mother. It was a picture of Kali, you know. And uh, she keep it under her pillow. She took it wherever she went. And since she was 10 years old, she had this little picture. It wasn't very big. And she brought it everywhere. And um, when she was getting married, it was time to get married, and her father, through a, um, a mutual friend or relative, I don't know, but he took her picture and presented it to the Ghosh family. And, 
you know, as a way of presenting her. Well, Sarita hilariously tells how, what a terrible picture it was. She said it was the worst picture in the world of her. It just was terrible. And anyway, the gauches declined. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so some weeks later, uh, Hare Krishna, who is Somnath's father, uh, took the picture back to her household to return the picture. And Sarita happened to answer the door. And so they got to spoke, speak for a few minutes. And in speaking with her in person, he changed his mind. He said, no, this is the perfect person. And being more liberal-minded, their parents let them um, meet before the uh, wedding. But that's, they just met, and she had never been to the house. So beforehand, she was praying to Divine Mother. She said, Divine Mother, let me go to a house where you are. Let, I just I couldn't bear it if I wasn't in a house where you are. And so um, she came, when she came after her marriage to the house, she was starting to look around the house, and she was sure that there'd be a shrine to Divine Mother there. She was positive. And she looked in every room, and there's no shrine to Divine Mother. Divine Mother, where are you? And she said she cried for months because Divine Mother wasn't there. And it meant so much to her. Well, gradually, she learned, of course, where she was. She was in Master's home. She was in this great avatar's home who had had visions of of Divine Mother, who Divine Mother had come and visited him in his home, and Krishna, and all these great, great um, beings and deities. And so gradually, she learned and realized you know, where she was, the Divine Mother. This was Divine Mother's home. And she became a disciple, and now her life is just totally dedicated to serving God. So um, keeping in mind, you know, that we have to practice. And that joy, and Jyotish has been talking about this lately and bringing up something Swami had said, that joy is the solution, not the reward. And that to meditate, and Devi just in her recent blog, she, she mentioned this. She says, meditate with joy, not for joy. And I remember Swamiji saying, live in joy. For when you live in joy, that attracts joy. So don't wait. Don't wait for that to happen. But be constantly giving it back to God. That's our purpose. Our purpose is to learn those lessons, to redirect our energy towards God. Always, always. Oh, oh, I'm going wrong. Redirect my energy. Open my heart and feel that joy inside and share that joy. For that's what we're here for, is to share that joy and share that love. God bless you. <laughs>